Hello and welcome to EGY Podcast, Voices on the World of Work. I'm your host, Bianca Luna Fabris, and in this episode, we will be looking into unemployment benefits and trade unions with Daniel Clegg and Elke Hines, both from the University of Edinburgh. This episode stems from an article that they have very, very recently written for our academic journal, Transfer, and you can, of course, um, find it linked in the show notes. I would like to actually uh, start with a with a simple question. So what role, if any, um, have unions played in the operation of unemployment benefit systems? So historically, they have played a huge role. And indeed, they were the first to come up with any kind of insurance against unemployment. And this was because unemployed workers could exert a downward pressure on wages. So offering some kind of support was really important for trade unions, not just from a moral point of view, but also really out of self-interest. And at a time, so, you know, late 19th century to early 20th century, when classic liberalism was really still very dominant and viewed any type of state interference into the labor market as an absolute no-go, unions were actually the first ones who set up some form of mutual help for their members in times of of economic crisis. These occupational funds stood on quite weak foundations, however, because they were organized by sector. So that means that during an economic crisis, lots of workers in the same trade lost their jobs simultaneously and that might easily bankrupt the funds. And therefore, a bit later, some local um, authorities stepped up and experimented with um, subsidizing these voluntary trade union schemes. And the most famous example is probably from the Belgian city of Ghent, where also the, the public authorities did support voluntary unemployment um, insurance funds. And yet to this day, we are speaking of a Ghent system of unemployment whenever public subsidies are being made available for voluntary trade union run unemployment benefit schemes. And this Ghent system of unemployment insurance is still prevalent in some countries and basically in most of the Nordic countries to this very day. Right, very clear. Um, but then what about continental Europe? And Daniel, perhaps you would like to, to take this one. Sure. So in, in continental Europe, the voluntary union-run unemployment insurance schemes were gradually replaced by mandatory or compulsory unemployment insurance in the course of the 20th century. This happened at varying times, so it happened between World War I and World War II in Austria and Germany, and it happened after World War II, sometime after World War II, in other countries like Belgium, France and the Netherlands. But unlike in the English-speaking world, in continental Europe, the mandatory unemployment insurance schemes retain some kind of imprint of the mutualist origins of unemployment insurance and therefore a role for the, the trade unions in the operation of the system. So the unions kept the largest role in these countries in Belgium, where unions continued to administer the public unemployment insurance. And for th that reason, Belgium is sometimes considered as a kind of partial or a pseudo Ghent system. So it's a bit similar to the systems of Nordic Europe, even though it has a mandatory unemployment insurance. Elsewhere, unions retained their role in unemployment insurance alongside employers. So it was not just unions on their own, it was unions and employers who were involved in the functioning of these systems. And that was a reflection of the way that unemployment insurance in continental Europe was financed, which was preponderantly in line with Bismarckian traditions of social insurance, preponderantly out of employee and employer social security contributions. So because the involvement of, of social partners is considered so 
kind of intrinsic to this continental model of welfare based around Bismarckian social insurance that Esping Anderson in his famous uh, study, The Three Worlds of Welfare Capitalism, he referred to this model as a corporatist model as well as a conservative model and the corporatism we find in the heavy involvement of, of the social partners, including the trade unions. So please correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that you analyzed three countries in your paper, Austria, Germany and France. And I think it would be actually quite helpful to unpack how things work in the three countries that you analyze. And maybe, Elke, you would like to tell us a little bit about uh, Germany and Austria? Yeah, sure. So um, Germany and Austria are both prototypes of this conservative or Bismarckian welfare regime that, that Daniel just mentioned, where the welfare state is, is basically organized to the principle of contribution-based social insurance. After the First World War, in, in both countries, so in both in Germany and Austria, unemployment insurance was made compulsory, and this had a lot to do indeed with the war experience. So these ideas of classic liberalism were of course undermined. You couldn't really blame an individual for unemployment in, in times like those. And of course, we also saw during the First World War that state interference was possible. So what happened then was that following um, sickness insurance and, and pensions insurance, which were already set up earlier in these, in these countries, that also unemployment insurance was set up in this tripartite way. So employers, unions and the state together funded the system and they also administered it together. Well, then there was some interruption during the Nazi period. And after the Second World War in both countries, there was a return to this earlier corporatist tradition and the um, social partners became quite heavily involved again in um, yeah, not just kind of narrow social policy making, but in, in much wider economic decision making. There are different measures around and according to some measures, Austria is um, the country with the highest level of corporatism. And here the social partners have a really huge role at national level in, in everything that is somehow social policy or labor market related. And in, in Germany, um, the situation is similar. Corporatism hasn't been quite so strong as in Austria and it has also been weakened more recently at national level but still at the sectoral level um, social partners are still having a really important um, role to play in decision making and especially unions exert quite a lot of influence through works councils at the firm level. But yeah, despite this huge influence of the social partners in general, it's paradoxically Austria, which is the one of our three countries we looked at, where trade unions have the smallest say when it comes to the governance of unemployment insurance. And it was only in the 1990s that the social partners gained some improved formal institutional power when the um, tripartite federal employment service was set up. And this then reinforced somewhat the legitimacy of of, of union involvement in both unemployment benefits, but also in active labor market policies, because this was now all managed by the tripartite board. And in Germany, the situation is quite similar. Also here, we have a federal employment agency that is organized according to tripartite principles, which has responsibilities over unemployment benefits and also active labor market policies. But ultimately, it is parliament and thus political parties and, and the parties in, in government, which have the most influence on labor market policy. The social partners power was was further reduced then as part of the modernization of the um, public employment service that was related to the famous and quite far reaching hard labor market reforms in the early 2000s. So um, 
as another consequence of these hard reforms, unions also um, do now not have any say in the newly created unemployment benefit too, which is the um, the tax funded part of unemployment benefits. And um, because of that, because it's just state funded, um, it's also not governed by the tripartite um, federal employment agency, but it's just really run by the state. Thank you very much, Elke. Uh, and Daniel, then what happens in France? Are things any different? So France is very definitely a Bismarckian welfare state. It developed as a Bismarckian welfare state after the the Second World War. It developed the institutional traits of this type of social protection system. But France is hardly ever considered a corporatist political economy like Austria or Germany might be in in slightly different ways. Indeed, the, the kind of widespread intervention of the state in various aspects of economic life in France is generally seen almost as being as as antithetical to to corporatism as market liberalism we find in in the UK or the USA because the state kind of crowds out the participation of collective actors in civil society. So France is usually seen as a statist political economy rather than a corporatist one in kind of general terms. But actually, and and therefore it's quite surprising, that of all the cases we, we study in the paper, it's in France that the social partners have the most significant role in the specific area of unemployment insurance. So France adopted a mandatory unemployment insurance scheme comparatively quite late, so only in the 1950s, the late 1950s, after the creation of the Fifth French Republic. And since its origins, this system has been based on national-level collective agreements that are negotiated between the social partners. So these agreements are renegotiated every few years at national level by the social partners, uh, with the objective of keeping the unemployment insurance fund, broadly speaking, in balance. So the social partners have negotiations, often quite fraught negotiations, about what kind of adjustments are needed to contribution rates, but also to various entitlement parameters to keep that system in balance. And once they've reached agreement on the adjustments that are needed, the collective agreement is then approved by the Minister of Labour, which allows it then to be extended to all firms in the private sector. And this Approval has historically mainly been a formality, a rubber stamp, uh, although there are a few exceptions to this general rule. So here what we see is really a role for the social partners, which corresponds more to what we might think of as self-regulation rather than the self-administration that perhaps is best to describe their role in Austrian and German unemployment uh, insurance. This is a distinction between different types of social governance that's been used by the comparative welfare state scholar Bernard Ebbinghaus. And self-regulation of this type is quite common across Europe in the area of complementary pensions, for example. So the social partners negotiating complementary pension arrangements, which are then extended to all firms in, in the sector or even nationally after agreement by the state. But it's unique to France in the area of first-tier unemployment insurance uh, systems. So this is an arrangement that gives the social partners a very considerable role traditionally in unemployment insurance. The executive, the government, a more limited role of kind of ex-post approval and involvement in the negotiations behind the curtain to some extent, and almost no role at all for Parliament traditionally. So uh, quite an unusual decision-making system. Okay, thank you very much. I have an additional question that perhaps is a little bit off piece, so I apologise for this. But 
President Macron has stated repeatedly over the summer and also during his campaign during the spring that he has plans to overhaul the unemployment insurance system in France. And do you think this is going to have any implications for the prerogatives of the social partners? Yes, certainly. So typically in France, uh, along the lines of the system I've just described, the agenda for the reform of unemployment insurance, the types of adjustments that are needed, has generally been set by the social partners themselves as as part of their negotiation approach. But this, of course, sits rather badly with uh, President Macron's reformist zeal in general, and more specifically his desire to move away from a kind of traditional social insurance, sorry, approach of the French uh, social model. So there was already a major reform of unemployment insurance during President Macron's first term of office. And for that uh, reform, a new procedure was introduced, a new governance arrangement was introduced, whereby the government provided the social partners with a framework document to set some parameters around the negotiations that they would have. So this document identified some policy objectives for the reform, but also a certain amount of cost savings that uh, the government wanted to see resulting from the changes. Now, the the cost savings that the government's framework document required were so extensive that it was impossible for the social partners to reach agreement. The social partners accused, more or less explicitly, the government of behaving in bad faith. And when they were unable to uh, reach agreement, uh, the government was able to introduce the reforms it wanted by decree, uh, which is how that reform in the last parliament was, was adopted. But there's no actually, not yet any stable new arrangement for the governance of unemployment insurance in France. So under the new procedure that it introduced in Macron's first term of office, the idea was that the government was going to produce an annual report on unemployment insurance, uh, and it hasn't done this. There was also a proposal that it should publish a new framework document for the social partners within a certain delay before the uh, collective agreement was due for renegotiation. And that's a deadline that it's missed. So the governance of unemployment insurance is a little bit uh, up in the air at the moment. As you mentioned, it's been in the news this summer that another big unemployment insurance reform is being promised for early in the new parliament. And it's almost certain that the question of governance, so what the future governance of the system is going to look like, is going to be one of the most controversial points. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Daniel, for for this uh, additional question. And now I would like to bring you back to the very heart of the paper itself, When we're speaking about unemployment benefits, do you think that trade unions really have the capacity to counteract liberalizing reforms? So today the question seems to be not so much can unions uh, resist liberalization, and that's not really the question that we address either in the paper. It's more in an age of liberalization of different types, can unions steer liberalization in more egalitarian directions? So that's towards kind of embedded flexibility forms of liberalization rather than, say, dualization or outright liberalization. Here, the kind of membership and therefore the representational outlook of unions is often considered to be really crucial. So where where unions have high rates of of membership and organize large proportions of the workforce, which is the case, for example, in the Nordic countries, it's thought that they have a greater willingness because of their membership profile to actually take into account the interests of more you know, peripheral groups in the labour market and argue for a more egalitarian approach to liberalisation, where by contrast, union membership is found largely in manufacturing or perhaps in the public sector, which is the case in in Germany and even more so in, in France. Then there's a suspicion that the unions have a more narrow representational outlook and will tend to 
defend the interests of core workers, labor market insiders, even if this means accepting some losses for labor market outsiders. So what the literature tends to expect is that in continental European welfare states where unions tend to be having lower levels of density, that they would mount relatively weak resistance to liberalizing reforms, and they might even use their institutional power to make sure that outsiders bear the brunt of any liberalizing reforms that have to take place. So they might be almost a pro-dualization actor. And this kind of dynamic, given their membership profiles and, and therefore their assumed representational outlooks, that should be most true in France, because France is the country in the world with the lowest rates of union density at least in the advanced economies. And it should probably be least the case in, in Austria, because Austria has this unique chamber system, which means that though formal union density is quite uh, moderate compared to the Nordic countries, there's still quite an inclusive form of, of labor representation. So we'd expect to see kind of the most effective resistance to dualization in Austria and the least effective resistance in France and, and Germany, probably somewhere in between which is in fact not at all we, what we find in our analysis. Right. So so what is it that you find in your analysis? And maybe Elke would like to jump in here. So it's really quite interesting that, first of all, we, we have to bear in mind that in all of our three country cases, trade unions are very much concerned with the well-being of so-called outsiders, and they have clearly not abandoned them. But the ability to defend their interests, in addition to that of the so-called insiders, so their kind of core membership, this very much varies, and it really depends on the political, but also on the institutional context. So politically, if the governing parties are happy for trade unions to be involved in unemployment protection, then outsiders will also be protected. So this is probably something we can imagine under a social democratic government, for example. If trade unions are marginalized, then it's bad news for outsiders, though. And and we could see clearly that this happened in, in Austria. So whenever um, there was um, a strong social democratic party in, in Austria, so when they were part of the government, then, then that was usually good news for outsiders. But we also show in our article that the institutional power matters. So with this, we really mean what the institutional role is in the operation of unemployment benefits, but yeah, also more widely in, in terms of the labor market policy decision making. And if institutional power of unions is, is high, then they will attain the, the enhanced outsider protection that they seek. So what we found in France was that here unions were able to use their regulatory role in unemployment insurance to improve protection for outsiders, regardless of which political party was in power. But where they do not have this strong institutional involvement in unemployment insurance, so that's Germany and then Austria in, in our study, then their hands are really tight. And if the government then does not want to share policy making authority in, in the area of unemployment insurance with the unions and is is really um, intending to weaken unemployment protection for outsiders, then, then the unions can't really do much against that. Fantastic. Thanks so much um, to you both. Now, on to the pandemic. Do you think anything has changed in the functioning of unemployment insurance? So, yes, in Germany, a few things happened in response to the pandemic. So one important development was that access to unemployment benefits was, was made much easier during the peak of the pandemic. And what is also really important is that 
German trade unions and well German policymakers as such could rely on the um, really well functioning and, and long established short time work schemes. So um, these were also used quite heavily during the pandemic. And this is really important because we had this really well-functioning tool in Germany that meant that lots of workers actually didn't need unemployment insurance because their jobs were protected through these short-time work schemes. So the shock wasn't quite as bad as otherwise, you know, would have been expected. And while there is federal legislation that that kind of almost automatically, very swiftly can put these um, schemes into place and um, then extended the duration and the level of the short-time work allowance as well in response to the pandemic because it was so unprecedented. Also, the unions in some sectors then managed to to reach some agreements with their employers in the sector to make short-time work support even more generous during the pandemic and and also um, reach some agreements on improving dismissal protection, for example. And Daniel, what about France? Is the story any different? The picture during the pandemic was largely very similar in France, although France has a less well-established tradition of short-time work schemes than than Germany, certainly. But short-time work certainly did the, the heavy lifting in France in terms of responding to the coronavirus uh, pandemic, much more so than it did after the uh, global financial crisis, for example. So there seems to have been a kind of degree of policy learning that maybe this instrument hadn't been used enough in the wake of the global financial crisis and should be deployed more. So this short-time work scheme, or chômage partiel, as it's called in, in France, was very heavily used and the social partners were very involved in, in that. So similar dynamic to in Germany and Austria, the use of short-time work prevented, to a large extent, open unemployment from rising very much. So there weren't enormous direct pressures on the unemployment insurance system. The reforms that I referred to previously to the unemployment insurance system, which had actually been adopted in 2019 and were due to be gradually brought in between later in the year in in 2019 and then a next wave in 2020. So the second wave uh, and then actually the the, uh, reforms from later in 2019 that had already been introduced, these were suspended for the duration of the pandemic. So the unemployment insurance system went back to its kind of pre-reform configuration. It wasn't extended any more than that. Uh, but but broadly speaking, the, the French unemployment insurance scheme is relatively encompassing and generous uh, in comparative perspective, and therefore it has fairly good shock absorption capacities. An interesting footnote, perhaps, to this pandemic story is that the unemployment insurance fund uh, was used to finance a lot of the short-time work, which, of course, was incredibly expensive in France, as it was absolutely everywhere. So this is uh, you know, contributed to, to deepening the deficit of the unemployment insurance fund very considerably. And of course, the absorption of that deficit is going to be one of the stakes of the reforms that are upcoming in the next parliament. So that's so that's sure to be a controversial issue. OK, well, thank you so much to you both. And I think we've put a lot of meat on the table today. And I think it would actually be quite helpful if we try and wrap this up. And Elke, maybe you would like to take this one and summarize the article in just 10 seconds. Oh, well, that's a challenge, but I try. So the main message is that even in continental Europe, trade unions are the most powerful voice defending outsiders in welfare state politics. And um, that reducing the institutional power in unemployment insurance and in other areas will likely make things worse for outsiders and will not, although some political leaders might imply this, 
make things better for outsiders. Thanks so much to you both for being with us today. And thanks so much for the listeners for sticking with us this far. And of course, you can find Elke's and Daniel's article on unemployment benefits and trade unions linked in the show notes.